Let's go with uh, what is our 15th lesson. I'm going to finish up a little trilogy tonight that we started a few weeks ago. And I'm going to call this one Appreciation of the Mystery. We did the mystery revealed at the top of chapter 3. We did the purpose of the mystery last week. And of course, the mystery revealed is that God was going to bring Gentiles in to a new covenant on the same footing as he had his own, what, what would have been called the people of God. In other words, Gentiles get to be full heirs. That's the mystery revealed. The purpose of that mystery was so that the church then could reveal the manifold wisdom of God. We talked last week about the multicolored wisdom of God and how God could have done this any way he wanted to. I mean, he could reveal the power of the Holy Spirit through nature. He could reveal the power of the Holy Spirit through his own hand. But he did the, what seems like the worst idea, which is how God's ways are different than ours, is he said, I'm going to do it through people, through this institution called the church, and I'm going to show out the wisdom of God through the various colors of man. And, and literally, you can take that word in whatever iteration you can think of. Various people across time in various languages and various cultures and different parts of the world and different socioeconomic backgrounds and different circumstances, um, the church has survived. And not just survived, but literally thrived, even in the midst of great persecution and bloodshed and being crushed and forgotten and stepped upon, the church survives. And it's the greatest, as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the greatest um, evidences of the reality of the Holy Spirit is the survival of the church across cultures and across time. That was the purpose of the mystery, that God would, through His church, um, show this good news. Tonight, I want to head towards the end of the chapter with the appreciation of the mystery. This is a segment that I think is loaded with a lot of implications. There's some stuff that Paul says in this. First of all, this, is, this constitutes a prayer by Paul. Paul will talk about bowing the knee, and so a, a sort of a euphemism for I have a prayer that I'd like to pray over my Ephesian brethren. And so this section of Ephesians 3 actually includes that prayer, which is pretty cool because if you think about what would Paul pray over a church he had started, um, the stuff he doesn't pray over them is pretty glaring compared to how we pray over our churches. He doesn't say, I'm praying you guys grow. I'm praying you guys get bigger. I'm praying you have more influence in the city. I'm praying that you change lives. I'm praying for a bunch of people to get saved. His prayers are all comprehension. He really wishes they knew more about how loved they were. He really wishes they knew more about the Holy Spirit living inside of them. This prayer is a great indication if you ever wanted to know, like, what would Paul say to the church today? This prayer is probably it. Because I told you this at the top of this book. Ephesians is special because there's not a real glaring problem. He doesn't have the issues he has with Corinth. He doesn't have the issues he has with the Roman church or the Galatian church. You can find really evident problems in those letters. Ephesus is just a guy writing to a church to say, keep it up. Here's the encouragement. And, and I know it's, it can't because they're perfect and they're not screwing things up and they're not doing all the stuff we would be doing in church. But it's the approach that he has is to say, I'm not writing you to fix something just writing you to encourage you, to let you know how good God is and how good He is in you. And so we can learn a lot in this appreciation section. And, but I also want to say as well that we're not going to finish the chapter. We're going to do that on purpose. Uh, we are going to leave a couple of verses hanging right at the end because I want to, um, for the first time in a while, really set us up for a, a, a little bit of an eschatological lesson 
Um, we don't do a lot of that on these Tuesdays for the simple reason, well, I'll say more about that next week. I'll just save it to say that I do want to deal with, with uh, a little bit of Paul's framing of the end of the age and the end of the world. And, and I'll do a big intro for that next week. I'll save it for that time. So when we don't finish the chapter tonight, it's, that's why. Uh, we're leaving it hanging there just for that so that we can kind of put a bow on chapter 3 in the right way, a, a way that I think is pretty crucial. So let's start by just reading through what we're going to make it through, which is the 19th verse. We'll start in verse 14. We stopped right up next to this one last week. We'll go to 19. There's actually 21. Again, save them for the next segment. For this reason, I bow my knees. There's that euphemism for prayer. And I don't really think it's just a euphemism. I think he literally is praying this. This is what I want Ephesus to know. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And I, I want to say, if I had a highlighter, um, it, it, there are just boom, just segments of this chunk of scripture that we're going to just take apart tonight, set by itself, give you the Greek, and there's so much richness to this prayer. I think this is, this is some beautiful literature. So there is a lot more than meets the eye. The English kind of dumbs this down, this prayer right here. And, that, and so there's a lot going on that we land as best we can with these single English words, but we can do better and we'll try. The whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, depth, and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Um, with this here, and knowing that we're going to just we're, I, we're actually going to isolate some verses tonight, too, so it's not just one big chunk. Um, one thing that catches my eye from Greek to English is our earliest Greek translations um, stops on verse 14. It stops at Father. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. And you can just kind of cut that out. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And that may seem like a small deal. Somewhere after our earliest Greek, some scribal edition dropped in of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to just imagine that text without of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that Paul is not trying to isolate that he's praying to the Father of Jesus. He's praying to the Father of everyone in heaven and earth. And that's more indicative of the way this shows up in the Greek. Isolate, just, just look at 15 there by itself. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So think about, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I don't know if perhaps some scribe later thought, can't really say he's the father of the whole world, because what's that indicate if he's the father of the whole wide world? Well, I want to make it clear that I am a firm believer that God is the father of the whole wide world. I, there is no such thing as a human that's outside of the family of God. It's impossible for him to make humanity in his likeness and his image, but he's got these over here that, that are not, that he's not the father of. I didn't say everybody is aware of their sonship that everybody's walking in their identity or that they're unwrapping their inheritance, that they're looking into their heavenly bank account like we talked about in Ephesians 1. Absolutely they're not. Otherwise, why are we presenting the gospel? By presenting the gospel, we're giving good news to people that, like, like Paul said to, the, to, the, um, to those in Greece, 
He's not that far away from you. Um, I want you to know he's not as far away from you as you think. Any, any distance has been placed there between you and him, not him and you. So let's look at that word family for a second. It's from the Greek word patria. And this is actually the root of where we get patriarch. And so when you hear about a patriarch, that's the, that's the paternal or the male head, the fatherly head of a family. However, this is interesting to me. Patria is actually the Greek for a lineage that's been derived from a single forefather. That's where we get patriarch because it's a father head. And then when the world uses the phrase patriarchal system, that just that is a reference. Usually it's a reference in modern vernacular the patriarchy is usually a reference to male-dominated societies. However, that's more of a co- modern context than an ancient context. Because in an ancient context, patriarchal would be head of a family. And the head of the family was the father. And so when Paul says family, using the Greek word patria, he's deriving the family of the earth from a single lineage, which means every group, every race, Every culture, every people group, every tribe, every nation on earth derives its lineage from the one God, the Father of us all. Now, we have muddied the waters on this stuff by trying to figure out how people ended up with different skin tones and how we ended up with different language and how we end up with all these different cultural um, identities across geographies and across time. And the reason I say we've muddied the waters is because a lot of times in trying to figure out where people come from, I feel like all we're trying to do is figure out that we're not the same and why, or that we're not necessarily equal. Paul skips the argument. It's not as if there are not different tongues and different races in his day. He doesn't even bother with it. He just ignores it. And he just goes straight to the whole family of the earth is in, is in God. When I bow my knees to the Father, I'm not just talking about my, to the Father of Jesus. That's why I wanted to point out that that might be a late English edition. That Paul is not saying I'm bowing to the Father of Jesus. He says I'm bowing to the Father of you and the Father of me, the Father of every person under the sound of my voice, the Father of all of heaven. This is interesting too. All of heaven and earth, all of the realm of the spirit and all of the realm of the natural underneath the umbrella of who God is. And so that, you work on that yourself. I mean, I think that's worth chewing on and just try to get to the bottom of what it would look like. What if we really believed that? It would at least cause us to perhaps get us to think in terms of family with people that aren't part of our family. And we don't have a problem with that if we go to the same church long enough or we hang out together long enough and go, oh, I love these people like family. But I just wonder if part of the reason Paul needs to bow his knee to the father of the family of the earth is to start there, is to go, God, teach us that we're all part of the same family and that if we could get that. Um, and, and guys, it's not obvious. It's just not obvious that we're all part of the same family. If, you're, if you are looking at this young man slopping hogs and he's wasting away in poverty, you do not realize who his dad is. So if you just take yourself to the prodigal son and you run to the other side of the camera 
<laughs> and you're not looking at it from dad's point of view and dad stand at the end of the lane waiting on his son to come home. No, you're looking at it from the other side of the hog pen. And you're watching this kid waste his life, waste his every penny. And in our modern culture, tick off all of the stuff that is a wasted life. And he's doing all of them. And you would have a hard time saying he's his father's son. You know, we, we wouldn't even make that statement. So I guess the point is, is that it's, it's not always obvious who f- that everyone's a son of the, or a daughter of the father. What the gospel's trying to do is make us aware. It's trying to find us in the middle of our hog slopping and our field hand work and tell us, hey, your dad loves you. And you can go home again. And they'll kill the fag calf for you. And you can have all the stuff that you're trying to buy out here. And you can't buy it out here. You can't buy that kind of happiness. You can't buy that kind of fulfillment. And then that great moment in the prodigal son when Jesus says, and then he came to his senses. I always love that moment that Jesus uses. He goes, he came to his senses because that's really what the gospel is. It's trying to get you to come to your senses. You got a dad that loves you, that cares for you, that you don't have to do this, that your life could be better than that. I didn't say your life's going to be great or perfect, that you're never going to have any problems, but you don't have to fill the void any longer with foolishness and waste when your father has a home you can go to. And if that's not the gospel, I don't know what is. It's way Listen, to me, that's way better than, hey, come to Jesus so you don't go to hell someday and you can go to heaven. And that's fine. I'm I'm okay with go to heaven, meet Jesus. The gospel's just better because a lot of the people you're saying that to are slopping hogs. That is hell. They're already there. And they look at this message and go, what are you talking about? This isn't, I don't need something for 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 2,000 years from now. I don't know. I could use something today. And if we just relegate the gospel to a spoken word, but it is not the food on dad's table and the shoes on your feet and the robe on your back, then it becomes really easy to say that we're preaching the gospel as long as we preach. But that the gospel doesn't have anything to do with feeding the guy and clothing the guy and helping the guy. I don't know how I got there off of the family of man, but I guess it's just the idea that it's difficult for us to comprehend what fatherhood looks like because we've contextualized it so much to just come up here and get saved. And then you'll know you're one of the sons of God. And Paul tries to open his prayer with, I bow my knee to the father of everybody. And, and as I'm getting started with this prayer, start there, that he's the father of everybody. And what if you could just comprehend what he thinks of you and how good he is and who he is? And that would be a pretty good place to start. So go to the next verse then. He, this is 16. This is right after the Father of heaven and earth that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. So first of all, it's just a gift. So Paul's prayer for the Ephesian people is not that you earn it. Not, it's just I want God to grant you. I, here's what I'm asking God to do for you, to dip into the riches of His glory. And Paul's kind of playing on his own words from Ephesians 1, heavenly bank account stuff, the stuff that already belongs to you. It's His glory. It's His riches. That God would just dip into the riches of His glory and that you would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the inner man. There are two things in this verse that, that really are worth a whole night. So let's just slow down and make sure we get these two. If we don't get anything else, this is pretty good teaching. His glory and in the inner man. And there are two things that point to Paul, the depth of Paul's theology in a way that maybe nothing else he says in this entire letter does. So start with his glory. This corresponds, as far as I'm concerned, 
to the goodness of God and the goodness of God as revealed in the Old Testament. And just so that people will look this up, read this on your own. We don't, I almost did go back and just read a whole chapter and a half from the Old Testament, but I don't want to do that because I know we don't have that kind of time. So it's Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. And in that text, Moses says to God, show me your glory. It's one of that famous moment in the Old Testament where Moses and God have been having this very personal conversation. God has basically said, look, uh, I'm going to tell you everything. I don't really want to mess with Israel. Moses and God have had these back and forth, back and forth. God's given the law. Um, Moses is the only person that seems to really know and appreciate the presence of God. Israel's even said, we don't want it. So Moses is just embracing this. And he says to God, show me your glory. And we don't really know what Moses means. We don't got a commentary on the side where Moses goes, here's what I really wish God would show me. What's he mean? Show me your glory. He's already talking to God. I don't know. I give you my theory is I think Moses knew there was something to God that he needed to comprehend that was going to change the rest of his life. And he wanted it. And he didn't quite understand what it was because he had a lot of ideas about God because we have a lot of ideas about God. And Moses is no different. And Moses has spent 40 years in Egypt hearing about other gods. And he wants to know what his God is. I think that's what he means. Show me your glory. Because glory is that, that sort of the effervescent word. It's just like, show me your, your largesse. Show me what you really are. And so he says to God, just show me what you really are. Because I, I know what the gods of Egypt are, but I want to know what you are. What do you look like? And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So God's answer then is, oh, you want to see my glory? I'm going to show you how good I am. So the answer to the question that Moses in a way asks, which is, what is your glory, is it's my goodness. And God says, I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you. And in the next chapter, God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock in in a cave, essentially puts his hand over his eyes. And and we're not to believe that God has a literal hand (laughs) and that he reaches down and puts it over Moses' face. But it's it's the only way Moses knows how to describe this moment is it's like someone walked past me and covered my face. And I could sense the presence pass me. And as it passed, then I could see as it moved away the goodness of God. And in the next chapter in Exodus 34, God describes himself as long-suffering and full of mercy. And that's the description of goodness. And so corresponding to what Israel would have understood to have said his glory would have been to say his goodness. But in the passage on hand, which is Ephesians 3.16, It corresponds to what Paul said back in verse 8, which is that the church is to be releasing the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so for Paul, the glory of God is the unsearchable riches of Christ. For the Old Testament world, the glory of God is the goodness of God. Put those two together. The goodness of God is the unsearchable riches of Christ. The more you know about Christ the more you know about good God. The reason people struggle with a good father and they go, yeah, you're preaching God is good, but you need to show the fullness of God. You need to show what God really is, is because we aren't infatuated with Christ. If the more we fall in love with Jesus, the easier it is to see that God is good. When you're around believers that struggle with a good God, ask them about Jesus. They don't Read about Jesus, think about Jesus, talk about Jesus. They know what they would vote for if the election was next week. They know who they want to be the president. 
They know what they think about the Middle East, and they got four good theories on eschatology. But you ask them about Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and you'll find out how good people think God is. Because the essence of a good God is Christ. This is why. I've said this before. Say it again. Be careful when you say, I'll die on a hill. Okay. It might be the hill you die on. Okay. So maybe don't choose it loosely. But I'm prepared to die on this hill. Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. And Jesus is what God will always look like. The same yesterday, today, and forever means something. <laughs> it means I've always been this way. Daddy and I have always been one. If I am this way, this way, if I'm always this way, then guess what dad was? Always this way. So the goodness of God is the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm never shocked when I meet believers that don't think God is good because they have a low Christology. They just have a low Christology. They don't, Christ isn't central to our Christianity. I don't, I'm not infatuated with the word Christian. Okay. It's a title for what we are. It was originally an insult to the early church. You're one of those that thinks they're Christ or you think you're like Christ or you might even be crazy enough to think Christ lives in you. You're one of those Christians. That's literally how that word would have sounded which sort of then morphed into an easier way to say Christian. Um, I don't care if you don't want to call yourself Christian. I mean, because I know people have connotations. They know what that stands for, whatever. Um, it doesn't move me one way or the other. Um, but as followers of Christ, you, you call yourself a Christian, not a Christian, you don't like it, the terminology, who cares? As followers of Christ, we have to major in Jesus. We don't have a choice. Like, I, I would be so bold as to say, stop calling yourself a follower of Christ if you don't major in Jesus. If you major in the elements of Christianity, like stuff, like theological points, just say that. Just say, you know what I'm really into is end of the world. I'm an end of the world believer. Okay, at least you're being honest. You believe in a faith that really just prepares you for what you believe is the end of the world. Okay, you know, at least that kind of honesty at least can spark conversation. That's not necessarily following Jesus. And as I said a moment ago, we're going to get to what I think is a pretty brilliant end of the world statement by Paul in next week's lesson as we close out chapter three. But, uh, and it's not, it doesn't necessarily strike us that way when we see it. But our, our, our major is Christ. And the more that we major in Christ, the better God looks. I mean, you can use this as a litmus test. When you're around people that don't see a good God or they see elements of God that don't look like Jesus, it's because they're not focused on Jesus. Because if you can say, can you find that in Jesus and that stirs people to offense, then who are we following if not Christ? The glory of God is the goodness of God. In this context, the glory of God is the unsearchable riches of Christ. Therefore, the goodness of God is the unsearchable riches of Christ. What's a good God look like? Looks like Jesus. He can't look like anything but Jesus. He always looks like Jesus. Then Paul ratchets up the theology. This is a, it's, it's bigger than it looks. Paul says he wants this to happen in your inner man, 
Okay. Uh, it's not totally, it's not the only time Paul talks about stuff like that. There's a moment in Romans 7 where Paul says, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my inner man or my natural man, I serve the law of my flesh. Paul seems to lay a dichotomy out in Romans 7 between this side of me that wants to do the right thing and this side of me that doesn't, which has led Hollywood to putting one angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder, and they're both talking in your ear, which is probably not all that far from the truth. It's like uh, Solzhenitsyn said, the, the, the line between good and evil isn't out there. It runs through the heart of every man, which is a pretty theologically powerful statement. It's to say, like, you're not that far off one way or the other of, of that's, there's that inner man, there's that you, and then there's that other you. And, um, and that's okay. That's, that's part of being human. Even Jesus dealt with, I think, even Jesus dealt with that man. But in terms of the inner man, it, I'll just read this out and we'll move on. It constitutes some of Paul's most pointed language about the working of the Holy Spirit within us. The Ephesians letter is largely corporate. So Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus, and that's been made obvious in Ephesians 3, and it's going to really be made obvious in Ephesians 5. And then you get into the armor of God stuff in Ephesians 6. This is a corporate letter. Um, However, right here in the middle of a corporate letter, Paul reminds us of the individual aspect of our faith, that the Holy Spirit actually wants to work in you, not just in the church, but in the individual within the church. Our faith is neither a common confession to the exclusion of the individual experience, meaning that our faith is not simply that we are a corporate body of believers and my individual life doesn't matter. As long as I go to church, as long as I love her and love him and love her and love her, then I'm part of this. That's, I don't know if percentages work, but let's use one. That's half of your salvation. This body is half of your salvation. It's not, doesn't exclude the individual experience However, at the same time, flip that coin. This is not a private faith without a corporate confession. You don't just get to say, well, you know, I don't like people, and I don't want to be around them, and I, you know, the rest of humanity can go to hell, but I know I'm going to heaven because just me and Jesus got our own thing going, and I don't need anybody else. And that attitude is opposite of what it means to be part of the family of God. This is part of what Ephesians is trying to do. And so, look, I get it as far as like pain and hurt and you've been abused and you've been spiritually molested and run over and you don't want to be around people. I get it. Um, I'm a largely introvert by nature. I can go days without talking to other humans. And sometimes those are the best days of my life. (laughs) And I'm okay with that, but have had to learn in ministry to push back against solely an individual salvation because the more I'm with other people, the more I realize I need them. Even when I don't want them. That's been a a lesson I've had to learn. I don't want to be around them sometimes. I need to be around them sometimes because sometimes you do things you need to do, not that you want to do. There are many days I go out and run and I don't want to go out and run, but I need to go out and run. And so I go out and run. That's an idea that's like in the physical realm of sometimes how I view things in the spirit is to go, I do have a personal confession of my faith. It's important. It's not exclusive. It needs everyone else. And it's part of Paul's prayer that they would understand that. All right. Verse 17. And this is further. The prayer gets deeper and deeper. He wants this as well, that Christ 
may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. I, was just, I want you to think about this idea that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If you're super literal and argumentative, then you'll read Ephesians 3.17 under the impression that Christ may not currently dwell in their hearts through faith. But that would negate the purpose of this whole letter. I mean, if he's not already there, what are you doing talking to people about being part of the mystery? Paul's not saying, look, I don't think you people even have Christ in your heart. So part of the, this is, is that we could, we could relax a little bit on being word police. Like if things aren't worded exactly the way we think they ought to be. We wouldn't say this. We wouldn't say to people, I wish Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. Because we wouldn't take that to mean, I don't think he does. I don't think that's Paul at all. It's Paul saying, look, I know you are part of the church. I know that you're part of the family of God. What I really wish is that Christ would the, that you would place faith in the Christ that dwells in your heart, and the more you placed faith in that Christ, the more you would realize that He dwells in your heart. Here's how I know this, because I told you earlier, our English is just kind of shoddy compared to the Greek. Like, if you just read this in the English, you walk away, and it's a nice prayer, but it's not got the, the gravitas that it has when Paul lays it out in the Greek. So here's an example. The word dwell is the Greek word katoikio, and it's really simple to settle down in a dwelling. Now you go, okay, dwell sounds pretty good. You know, yeah, you settle down in a dwelling, dwell. True, not that far off until you realize it's transverse word or you realize what else is out there. Before we do that, let me give you a couple Pauline examples of what this word looks like elsewhere because that might help you to understand this. Here's a couple. Colossians 1.19. It pleased the Father that in Him, in Christ, all the fullness should Katoikio, dwell. Okay, what's that mean? God was excited that in Christ, all of God would make his house. What God likes is that he puts his entire heavenly home inside of Jesus. Where is heaven? Colossians 1.19 tells you where it is. It's in Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, that's heaven. What if he makes his bed in hell? Hell becomes heaven. Guys, this is the kingdom. When Jesus, when, when Mark gives that parable, I just did this on the podcast a few days ago. When Mark gives that parable of the seed, and right before that, Jesus says the seed is the word. And John said the word is Jesus. Okay, so who's the seed? Jesus. You cast the seed into the ground, the seed grows. What's Jesus saying? Just throw me in the room. Just toss me in the room. He goes, I, I am the kingdom. Throw me in the room, I'll take care of the rest. It pleased God that everything God is would make its house in Jesus. So all of heaven would just land in Jesus. That's, that's Katoikia. Let me show you one more, just for the fun of it. Colossians 2.9, In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, for in Christ Katoikio, the fullness of who God is in bodily form. So the fullness of who God is in bodily form made its house in Jesus. So two and two makes four. If the fullness of God is in Jesus and Jesus is in you, the hope of glory, then the fullness of God is in you. Katoikio, God's pretty happy to be there. Katoikio has a permanence to it, a weightiness. Now, just to make sure you understand that, contrast it. The Greek word katoikio contrasted with the Greek word parochio. 
parochio is to dwell in a place as a stranger or a traveler, which means the word Paul chooses to use is a word that speaks of permanence. The word Paul doesn't use is a word that speaks of transience. And so Paul purposely picks a word that sounds very much like another word, but is not another word. Paul purposely picks a word in which you dwell in a house, not a word in which you dwell in tents. And to give you an idea of what it would look like if he had used parochio, is it would look something like this, Hebrews 11:9. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise. Looks a lot like dwell from Ephesians 3, but that's because the English can't possibly get you to the beauty of the Greek because that's parochio. He didn't live there. He was transient there. By faith, he was a stranger or he dwelt in the land of promise as if he were in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob in heirs with him of the same promise. So they weren't putting a tent down as their final home. They were putting a tent down as their temporary home. Had Paul used parochio, guess what he thinks God is doing in you? Sticking around for just a little while. But he didn't use parochio. Here's another example. Luke 24, 18. This is the road to Emmaus. The one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, him is Jesus. They don't know that. This is when their eyes are blinded. Remember, this is resurrection afternoon. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and you have not known the things which happened there in these days? Parochio. Are you the only transient person not from Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened there? Okay, Paul could have used that word when he talks about God dwelling in you, but he doesn't. He uses a word in which God puts down roots in who we are. What I like about that is that if God dwells in you, Katoikio, not God is moving through you, Petroikio, then your Christianity, your salvation, your indwelling Holy Spirit isn't going anywhere. God didn't just move in because you've had a good three-week run at going to church. You know, he likes that you've been reading the book of John and he goes, we're going to settle in here for a little while and do something. And that's kind of how we treat stuff. It's how we treat revival. It's how we treat growing in the faith. Like if you'd get really serious, we even preach this stuff. You get serious about God, God gets serious about you. Meet God halfway. You meet God halfway, God, and, and Paul's pushing against it, going, I wish you were smarter than this. I bow the knee to the Father of all of you and wish you understood that the Holy Spirit that dwells, dwells, lives, sets down roots, built a house inside your inner man isn't just getting up moving on when there's greener grass and stiller waters somewhere else because God knows I've given him enough reason to pull up his tent stakes and move on. Haven't you? Of course you have. You've given God enough reason to move on, but he doesn't move on, and that's Paul's, that's, that's Paul's point, which brings you to the thought of being rooted and grounded. Um, 17, 18. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Katoikio. He lives there. He's not going anywhere. He's not looking for a better place. That you would be rooted and grounded in love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height? Rooted and grounded in love. What a phrase. Um, our roots are a part of our heritage. They are the thing that causes us to be stable when the wind blows. 
I remember when I was a kid, we had a drain, a water drain that come off the back of our backyard and our backyard went out about six feet and then dropped really hard. This was a hill about six, eight feet long. And I remember my dad planted a weeping willow tree. He had gotten a, a one branch of it. You could, you could cut a branch of a weeping willow tree and stick it in a jar and it would start to grow. They love water. And so he planted this weeping willow tree about a foot from that drain. And that thing grew so fast. And I, we weren't in that house. We were, we were not in that house five years. And that thing was as tall as the house. It was massive. And I remember a, one of those bad summer tornado storms ripped through Southeast Missouri. We got those frequently, not always tornadoes, but always a lot of wind. And I remember that that tree came down one night with a massive crash. In fact, it crashed into the shed in the backyard of our house, just demolished it. And the whole thing came up. It didn't break. It didn't snap. The, everything come out of the ground. And this slope was not six feet. It wasn't like it was a drop-off cliff. But I remember when the whole thing came over, the, it, it tore a big hole out of the earth. But I remember being so fascinated that by the, the fact that the root system of this tree was hardly bigger, any bigger around than this table and wasn't but a couple of feet deep because it never really had to grow any roots because it was never stressed at all. It, it had water from the moment it was planted there. It had rich soil. It was, it was on a hill. It had tons of sunlight and all looked well until a massive storm came along and pulled, not just knocked the tree over, but tore the entire root system. And so I always kind of thought about that. Of course, you know, the moral of that story is that our roots run deep and that they run deep in adversity and that because of adversity, they have to go down and find more food and that causes it to be stronger. And all of that is apropos, but the point that I see in Paul rooting and grounding us in love is that love is that, in Paul's terminology, has nothing, I don't think, to do with romance or marriage or even your kids. His whole context is God's love for his family, um, a love forged across time and then reaching its climactic moment in Jesus. And for Paul, that, that is the root of what it means to be a child of God, is to understand the love of God. I think if our roots are anywhere else, we don't make it when it gets tough. I think it's also why our faith is a faith of convenience for a lot of people in successful parts of the world. It's really convenient to call yourself a Christian because it's no persecution. You get in the good club. People think something of you. And then when a real tornado hits and someone close to you dies and your job is gone and it isn't cool anymore to take a stand 
for Jesus because now you're on the wrong side of the political aisle or you're on the wrong side of the religious aisle. A lot of people just let that tree fall over and knock the shed down because their roots aren't in the love of the Father as exemplified through Christ. And they're in a lot of other things. And when our roots are in other things, we're not going to stay. The love of Christ, Paul said at one point, compels me. What's he mean? The love of Christ, the very fact that I'm so loved and that he has expressed that love through me, pushes me onward, gives me something to say, gives me something to do. I do think it would be worth our time, frequently, to to just put our faith into the crucible of, of knowing the love of the Father and find out if our faith is has its roots deep in knowing that we're loved or it has its roots deep in, in, in a religion of convenience or accessibility. This is a real problem of afflu- affluence. This is, the pro- this, is the, this is the great challenge in the Western church because we are rich, we are increased with goods, and we have need of nothing. And there is a church in the Bible that had all of those things. And I, I said this in, our, in my Jonah book. We did a chapter on part of a chapter on Laodicea and the fact that Laodicea gets threatened to be spewed out of Christ's mouth. And it's not that Jesus is sick and is going to vomit because if he's sick and needs to vomit, the best thing he can do is get rid of Laodicea. Jesus isn't threatening to vomit up his church. He's warning his church that they're growing very dangerously close to being a new Jonah, that they choose apathy over the challenge. And when we're rooted and grounded in love, it's harder for the storm to, to knock us over because not just our love for God, that's easy. Everybody says, I love God. But knowing they are loved and then knowing how to reciprocate that love. Um, let's land with comprehend. May be able, let me read it, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, depth, and height. This is, a, this is an interesting description because earlier in chapter 2, verse 21, Paul said, um, God is fitting the church together as a holy temple in the Lord, if you'll recall that. Um, We are a temple, and temples have measurements. Paul then jumps back into the illustration to say, width, length, depth, and height. It's kind of a cool thing of one chapter later. Uh, And remember, Paul didn't put it in chapters. So for Paul, it's all one continuous thought. God's building a temple. And if he's building a temple, it has width, length, depth, and height. I wish you could comprehend what that temple looks like, he says that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height. And that's the love of God that he's talking about. But let's hit comprehend. The Greek word, katalambano, to lay hold of so as to possess it as one's own. The English just doesn't do it justice because the English makes it sound like, I really wish you guys could understand how much God loves you. And that's just, okay, do you understand it? Sure, I understand it. Praise God. No, that's not the word at all. To lay hold of it as if you had it. To to hold on to it as if it mattered. You only hold on to if it it matters, if it really matters. Because when it gets tough, you're not going to hold on to it if it doesn't matter. Why would you? It's stupid. Don't hold on to something that doesn't matter in the middle of a storm. If a hurricane... Is coming. I didn't have hurricanes where I grew up. You guys had hurricanes. Okay, if you're going to take something, take what matters. You don't take a bunch of junk that doesn't matter. You don't have time for that. If the storm hits, and what matters? Your family. That's why you take care of them first. 
because they're worth holding on to. That's a comprehension. That's not just mental assent. To lay hold of as if to possess it as your own thing. Watch how Paul uses this elsewhere. You really want to get a sense of this word? Romans 9.30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have catalumbanoed righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. He uses, we use the word attain. But Paul says, you know what's amazing? Gentiles didn't even try, and yet they've grabbed hold of righteousness as if it's their own. That's the righteousness by faith. That's the same chapter, by the way, in which he says, Israel missed it because they tried to get it by their works. And he goes, I would to God that my brethren were saved. That's how he opens chapter 10. So they held on to it as if it belonged to them. Hold on to your righteousness as if it's yours, because it is. Hold on to the love of God as if it's yours, because it is. And that's, that's how Paul closes this in Ephesians 3.19. I wish you could catalumbano. I wish you would grab hold of the height, width, width, depth, and length of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let me stop here with this thought. To lay hold of the love of Christ. How high is it? How deep is it? How wide is this love? I don't know. That's, what, that's the joy. I mean, I know I'm getting it, but I don't know how you're going to get it, you, but it's your job. It is part of what it means to be followers of Jesus. Is, and if you don't know what to pray, you say, I'm running out of stuff to pray. Well, I got a feeling you haven't quite yet nailed how high, deep, wide, and long the love of God Christ is, so maybe go to that prayer. You know, Father, I really want to lay hands on what matters. And I think what matters is how loved I am. And I don't think I've got it because I can point out this, this, and this where there's some issues. And I know that if I had a comprehension of your love, some of this stuff would fall by the wayside. I'd let go of what didn't matter and I'd hold on to what did. So I want to lay hold of the love of Christ. I can't do that for you. That's why I put a question mark. You got to do that yourself. This would be to experience the fullness of God. Now, I don't think it's the full gospel that always insists on pointing out God's wrath and God's judgment. Because that's what our detractors say. You know what those grace people don't do? They don't preach the full gospel. You go, okay, well, what's the full gospel sound like? You go, there's a God of judgment and there's a God of wrath. You go, oh, that's the full gospel. So the grace and the love of God is part of the gospel. But the wrath and the judgment of God is the, is the part of the gospel that really matters. You see, Paul disagreed. Paul said... The fullness of God is the love of Christ. Not the fullness of God is God's really ticked off and you need to know about it. If you want to hear the full gospel and you're not hearing an abundance of the love of Christ, you are not hearing the full gospel. You might be hearing parts of what people consider the gospel, but Paul gives you the definition of the fullness of God. It's the comprehend the love of Christ. So, you should be hearing about Christ so much that you start to comprehend the love of God through Christ. And then you're starting to taste the full gospel. I propose that a lot of us have adjusted our spiritual taste buds to a partial gospel. That when the fullness of the real flavor of the love of God expressed through Christ hits, we think it's false doctrine. We hear the fullness of the love of God and push back with a bunch of stuff about God that doesn't look like Jesus. 
and we will we'll bring in Moses and Elijah and David and Joshua and we'll push all of them and we'll even ignore stories where that very thing happened. Jesus goes to the top of the mountain. He takes Peter, James, and John. And Moses and Elijah show up. And Peter goes, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three houses. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And God sends a great darkness, or a a light shines through Jesus and a cloud drops down over to where Peter can't see anybody. And he hears a voice come out of heaven that says, this is my son, hear him. And when he opens his eyes, there's no more Moses and there's no more Elijah. There's only Jesus. And we miss that where God puts an illustrated sermon in front of the future of the church and goes, don't ever, ever, ever think that you could put my Jesus in the same residential neighborhood as Moses and Elijah, because you can't build houses next to Jesus called the law and the prophets. When Jesus gets there, stop listening to Moses and Elijah. This is my son. Hear him. You want to know what the fullness of God's glory looks like? Look at Jesus. If you're not getting swamped with Jesus... You've been tasting cheap wine. The full vintage is a resurrected Jesus. Where this goes, I didn't give you these verses, but this is where this goes. 2021, we're going to read these next week. To Him is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Or as the King James says, world without end. A fascinating statement by a man who in another book says, we upon whom the end of the ages have come. So next week, we will conclude Ephesians 3 with a lesson titled, World Without End, quoting King James in a rare moment for us (laughs) next week. Let's say a prayer. Let the Holy Spirit do as He will in your heart with this. Father, we thank You. You are so good. You are so good, and we have yet to lay hold of how good. And I'm praying for the beginnings of a revelation of the height, the width, the length, and the depth of the love of Christ. If we could get just a little bit of that, we'd start to realize the fullness of God. Thank you that this prayer exists in Ephesians 3 to give us a template for what it looks like to grow past where we are. You finished the work, but you are not finished with us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.